Let's go ahead and get started. I got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to try to finish millennial uh, views by the end of this week. Next week, I would like to be at a place where uh, Rick can jump into uh, the actual text or at least a, bib- uh, an, a book overview, kind of like when you do a survey of a book in the New Testament, you give an author and when it was written and why it was written and yada yada themes and stuff like that, which is always helpful when you start to understand the book. Um, We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of preliminary ground on purpose. Um, again, if you guys are book hounds like me, um, I would recommend this book. It's called More Than Conquerors. It's an interpretation of the book of Revelation by William Hendrickson. It was written around the turn of the century. It is considered a classic. It's in reprint right now. Um, it's not expensive. I think I paid 18 bucks for this or 16 bucks or something like that called More Than Conquerors, with a Q, uh, by William Hendrickson with a K. Um, His overview in the first several chapters is probably the best one that I have out of all the books of Revelation that I have, just saying. Um, I haven't gotten really into the heart of it because, again, this thing just came back into print. Um, It's the 75th anniversary comment uh, uh, edition, so... I jumped on it when I found it. All right, so we've been talking about millennial views. Why is this important? What does millennial views have to do with anything concerning Revelation? Anyone? Oh, I have an announcement from my class assistant. We're doing the notes. We're still on the notes that we gave out last week. However, if you did not get those notes from last week or the outline of those notes, my wife uh, in the back... The blonde in the back will um, give you a set of notes for this class. Everybody good? You are all set. Okay, so what does millennial views have to do with your understanding of Revelation? Based on everything we've talked about. Hermeneutic, interpretive... Uh, interpretive view, now millennial views. What is the millennium? What is the millennium? First of all, thousand year reign of where on the earth. So a physical thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Where does that come from? It's pertinent to our class. Revelation twenty is the only place in Scripture that is talked about. However, a lot of people overlay Revelation twenty with certain verses out of Ezekiel. Just so you know. Um, because of hermeneutics, millennium, the way that people understand, the way that the chapter 20, 1 through 7, has been interpreted by many revelators or people who uh, commentate on revelation, it affects the way that most people understand revelation. Most people will understand end-time events based on a millennial con- construct and how you and tied with a hermeneutic. So if you're a premillennial or a dispensationalist at all, the millennial view is the consummation, uh, is an additional, con- uh, an addition or an add-on to the consummation of salvation. Um, if you are a postmillennialist, you still hold that the second coming of Christ brings everything to a close. Okay? 
And so um, there are two basic divisions in millennial thought. Anybody remember what those are? Pre and post, right? So you have pre, and then you have post, and pre-millennial, post-millennial. What, is that, what do those stand for? That's right, before and after the return of Christ. So you have pre-millennial, and under that you have two types of pre-millennial view. Anybody remember those? Historic, which basically is kind of a self-aggrandizing name because it's really not. Um, and the other one is premillennial dispensationalism. And I'll just use Bob's word, dispensational. Under postmillennial, there are two others. What are those? Anybody know? Post, postmillennial, and postmillennial, and amillennial. Okay, so we'll just do post and ah. There you go. Um, so you break them into two. This one, these two understand that the millennium follows after the second coming. So when Jesus returns, there's still a whole section of the drama to be played out. Okay? Post understands that, there, that the millennial reign somehow constitutes an era or an epoch prior to the return of Christ, and that the return of Christ brings all things to a conclusion, okay? I will tell you that just based on that concept alone, this is the better one biblically, because it, it brings everything to conclusion. The second coming of Christ is seen in Scripture to conclude everything, all right, and that's one of the issues that I uh, I personally have with dispensationalism is is that it's it, it because of its insistence on reading Revelation literally and chronologically they fill in a whole bunch of stuff after the fact, and it 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 there's some there's some very very interesting concepts in that particular thought process that kind of contradict really what the overall tenor of Scripture says. So in, in my view. Um, post-millennialists understand whatever position you're in that Jesus' return brings everything to conclusion. That's an important point. Okay, let's talk about premillennial views. Now remember, this view is based on, a, on several specific key hermeneutical factors, and those are Chronological understanding of Revelation, all right? This is why this works. You have the timeline of salvation, uh, first advent, church age, or oh, whatever. Man, I messed that up, didn't I? Tried to do it upside down. Church age. And then, because of the way they read it, they believe that at chapter 4 of Revelation, Jesus returns and takes the church out. So this is a rapture, okay? And they believe that there is a seven-year period wherein God's 
begins again with his with the Jews, and that's pretty much everything that you read between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19. Okay? And then, because the millennium is spoken of in chapter 20 of a chronological timeline, they understand that it comes, that there is a second coming here. And then after the second coming, Revelation 20, there is a 1,000 year. Okay? So it's very literal, and it's literal and it's chronological. Now, because it's literal, there's either exactly 1,000 years or very, a, a, a very commensurate time period, okay? And it's earthly. Christ earth physically reigns on the earth from Jerusalem in a rebuilt temple, from the throne of David. Yes. Yeah, that's what that's that was my statement just a second ago. It's either exactly one thousand years, or it's a it's a time period that's commensurate with that. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. I go fast, so I'm not at all opposed to going backwards. Okay, so those are the two factors that really, really weigh heavily on this particular interpretation. Now, there's a, let's go into historical premillennialism, which, by the way, you will find reformed people that are historical. Uh, premillennialists. Remember John Grudem, uh, Wayne Grudem? We spent, I don't know, 15 years in his book, something like that. Uh, uh, he is a historic premillennialist. But he's reformed in many of his views. So um, let's give a historical rundown of historical premillennialism because you will hear a lot of people in reformed circles say, I'm a historical premillennialist because it's been the view of the church since its founding. That is false. Any church historian will tell you that is false. Um, so that's point one under historical overview. Many defenders of historical premillennialism claim this version has a predominant viewpoint, was the predominant viewpoint of Christendom uh, throughout the ages. However, though there has been subscribers throughout history... And even with the early church fathers, this is not the case. Those church fathers who held to premillennialism were men like Justin Martyr and a couple of others who taught um, that the return of Christ would inaugurate a thousand-year period of peace and righteousness upon the earth, wherein the Old Testament prophecies regarding Israel's restoration would literally be fulfilled. Now, that's what Justin Martyr taught. Now, the problem with the early church's father's understanding of premillennial thought is that it came from a non-canonical book, or what we call the, a book of the Apocrypha. Okay? Most of their support of this came from the Epistle of Barnabas, which is non-canonical. And in the Epistle of Barnabas, he taught that Associated with the seven days of creation, after the seventh day, in parallel with the seven days of creation, there would be a thousand-year period per day of creation that led up to it. So there would be 6,000 years after the seventh day of creation, and then Jesus would return on the end of the 6,000th year, which would initiate the seventh day, which was a 
seventh 1,000-year period. That's what Justin Martyr taught based on the epistle of Barnabas. Um, however, for several factors, most, most uh, prominently the influence of Augustine. You've heard me mention Augustine before. The idea of premillennialism actually completely fell out of sight during the medieval times, just prior to uh, the Reformation. It was basically gone. Okay? Uh, Augustine held a view that the millennium was the entire church age. And that's what he taught. Um, but that, that wasn't new with Augustine, as we'll see when we get into postmillennialism. Uh... There was a slight revival of postmillennial thought during the 16th century, around the time of the Reformation. But the single most influential factor of the Renaissance of premillennial thought, whether it be historic or dispensationalist, is what? Darby. The early 1800s, the guy who basically came up with the dispensational concept. Okay? All right. Now, although some within the Reformed faith hold to a historical premillennialist view, this is an important point. They even allow it to be a, a, a point. It, in fact, contradicts Article 37 of the Belgic Reformed Confession, which says that the number of the redeemed is sealed at the second coming. That there is no more people that can be saved upon the second coming. Now, why does this contradict Premillennial thought. Anybody know? Uh, yeah, they believe that in after the tribulation, after the great war of Armageddon, that there is going to be peace on the earth, God will reign from Jerusalem, but sin, death, marriage, children, all of that will still be in the earth, and people can still come to faith during the millennial reign. Therefore, it contradicts what is understood scripturally as stated by the 37th article of Belgic Confession. And there was a big brouhaha over that uh, when a guy by the name of Dr. John Kraminga, who was a Calvinist and taught at the Calvinist the, uh, um, seminary, challenged this. And actually tried to get the, the Reform Synod to rewrite that article. They didn't. Um, okay, so um, just basically a, a quick overview. There were several that believed in hi historic premillennialism all the way back to the Church Fathers. However, that particular view came from a non-canonical book. Um, it lost... Wind, it lost its momentum during the medieval times to have a slight renaissance during the Reformation. It's had a few advocates since then, but it had a strong renaissance at the time of Darby and premillennial dispensationalism. Okay? What are the primary features of historic premillennialism? Again, it's the, uh, that it uh, follows directly after the return of Christ. Um, 
Again, it's an unspecified extended period of time, usually by historical premillennialists. Um, Christ will bodily pre- uh, will be bodily present on the earth. His earthly reign is one of universal peace and prosperity. However, though the Antichrist and his armies will have been defeated, sin and its consequences will not be completely removed. At this time, the saints will be given the special privileges of reigning with Christ. Um, it will, the return of Christ will come suddenly. It will be cataclysmic, uh, cataclysmic. And it will follow directly after an intensified tribulation. Okay? And because of that, historic premillennium is often called post-tribulationism. All right? Um, the big, here's the big difference between historic premillennialism, uh, uh, historic premillennialism and dispensationalism is that historic premillennialism does not make the same severe distinction between Israel and and the church. They believe that there is but one people of God and that they are brought to salvation the same way. That is different than dispensational premillennialism. When Christ returns and the millennial commence, uh, the millennium commences, national Israel will experience a corporate conversion and receive its special place in Christ's earthly kingdom. But it does reject the idea of the reinstitution of the sacrificial systems. Okay? The other distinction about premillennialism, which is consistent with all premillennialists, is that they understand that there's two bodily resurrections after the return of Christ. Or at one at the return of Christ. When the righteous are resurrected bodily... And then one at the end of the millennium when the unrighteous are raised bodily unto eternal punishment. And they call it the Bema Seat Judgment or the Great White Throne Judgment. You've probably heard those terms. Okay? That's historical premillennialism in a nutshell. Okay, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. We have really, really scoured premillennial dispensationalism. But I want to give you guys a historical overview of it just as a refresher because, again, most of America, most American Christians are influenced, if not completely in the camp of, a, a dispensational eschatology. All right? And Rick and I had, we're talking over lunch this week, and one of the things that we said is, is that I'm taking the time that I am on this because it, took, it takes time to Un, to, to undo a long history of thinking a particular way. It takes a while. It took me, I don't know, 21, 21 months of intense study to really come to a place of going, well, this doesn't make sense. So for me to do it for you guys in like, what, four or five weeks, that's a hard task, right? So... 
Again, dispensational premillennialism. And this is something you need to understand. Although dispensations or the economies of historic redemption have been accepted throughout the history of the church, and you will actually read where he talks about the dispensations of God. Now, we understand that God does different things at different times, right? It's just the way he works. And those are what's, in my estimation, the proper interpretation of what it is to, to have a dispensation. Premillennialists take that to an extreme and say God actually does things in a salvific way differently. Okay? That he redirects attention to these people or to this or this is the covenant that you're under. Or, and many times the break between one covenant to another or one dispensation to another is radical. And there's no cohesiveness. And that's the way what we see when we talk about the church in Israel. Jesus was rejected at his first incarnation. Radical cut off. They just cut off Israel for the entire church age. God focuses his entire attention on the Gentiles. And then at the rapture, he takes them out and then refocuses attention on Israel. Those are radical shifts. Okay? And so that's, that's kind of the character of dispensationalism it's very very radical in its shiftings and the other thing is is that it makes a very very significant distinction between old and new covenant or old and new testament almost to the point that the two don't gel anymore okay all right so we've already talked about the most uh you know this came from darby in 1825 it was propagated by C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Bible. My faith is based on nothing less than Schofield's words in printing press. Uh, song? <laughs> Guess not. Um, and the reason that this became... So let me just read this to you because I found this to be fascinating. Uh, a number of fundamentalist educational institutions during the early 1900s embraced dispensationalism because of its literal interpretive hermeneutic. They believed this to be necessary in, in combating the influence of theological liberalism and modernism during that time, okay? So dispensational thought sprang up all over America in a combative uh, stance against liberalism. Um, because of this... Dispensational understanding of the millennial remains the major opinion among evangelical Christians and is often regarded as the, listen to this, it's often regarded as the litmus test by evangelicals of one's commitment to the truthfulness of Scripture. That's why when somebody comes along and says, I believe that the church, the Israel now includes and is, constitute, is, is constituted by the, entire, the entirety of all of God's people not just Israel that's why you receive such or you you generally get a, a, a very uh, astonished response <gasps> you've just said something that's blasphemous it's because it's been taught as being blasphemy because it defies a literal hermeneutic or so they say all right, we've already gone through this. I'm going to go really quick through this. 
primary features of dispensational premillennialism, the uniqueness of the church. It has its own dispensation. We've already talked about that. Um, it has a very, very distinct understanding of Old Testament prophecies, all being with, uh, concerned with Israel. And here's the key. Because they do not understand that the promises made to Israel can be fulfilled in any way, shape, or form, literally, within the church age, which to me just is really hard to understand that all things are summed up in, in Christ Jesus. That's not the consideration in dispensationalism. But because they do not see the, the possibility of all of the Old Testament prophecies toward Israel being fulfilled within the church age, there has to be an epoch or an epoch where that is permitted. Hence, a millennial reign. Hence, a physical millennial reign. So that the promises of the Old Testament can physically be fulfilled, okay? We've already talked about this a bit, but a pre-tribulation rapture. Two comings, one secretive, without Jesus coming all the way to the earth, according to 1 Thessalonians. And this is the key. They say he comes for his saints at that coming. And then the second coming, which is physical, where he, according to Zechariah, touches down on the earth. And he comes with his saints. So they make a very, very big deal about coming for his saints in Thessalonians, coming with his saints in Revelation. Okay? Okay? And out of that, they come up with two separate comings. There's others, other things, other factors involved, but... Okay? And it's during this tribulation period that God resumes his efforts toward Israel. All right? And then there's the millennial kingdom. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the second coming of Christ will, will occur. At this time, the Jews will finally believe in Christ and be converted in total. Satan will be bound. So what Rick taught a couple of weeks ago with regards to Satan now being bound, a premillennialist does not hold to that. And they will tell you that the scripture that Rick used about the strong man being bound is a different binding. And they use a play on words in the Greek to come up with that. Okay. So according to premillennialists, right now Satan is not bound. He's hindered. He's confined. And he won't be physically and completely bound until the millennium the millennial reign. Yes. Yeah. So the idea is is that 
during the tribulation, there's a, you divide the tribulation into two halves, three and a half, three and a half years, right? First three and a half years, there is a treaty made between Israel and the, the, the individual recognized as called in, the, in Revelation the Antichrist. Because of this period of peace where Israel is, is held in a favorable light, he allows Israel to rebuild in a Judaistic sense, the temple right now where the Dome of the Rock is. Okay? After the three and a half years, there is a rebellion where the Antichrist shows his true colors and wages war on Israel. At just before Israel is completely obliterated off the face of the earth, Jesus comes back, fights for Israel destroys all opposition against Israel and assumes his role on the Davidic throne, which is a very key point. Thereby fulfilling David's, the prophecies to David where he reigns from David's throne in the Jerusalem temple. No, no yeah. So actually in, in premillennial thought, those three and a half years are literal. There's a literal seven-year tribulation. Three and a half years, peace. Three and a half years, war on Israel. At the end of seven years, Jesus comes back, assumes his place in the temple, and reigns from there for a thousand years, literally. Okay? Okay, you're welcome. That's, that's historic. Yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll get to what we believe here in a second. I'm teaching what most people understand right now. I'm teaching what most people in North America hold to. Okay? And I'm just giving millennial viewpoints. So the, the four, and now we're going to get into post-millennialism in that real quick jump. Okay? Now we're starting to move closer to what we hold. In a post-millennial hermeneutic, there is an idealist. It, it is based on these two characteristics. It's idealist or it's a recapitulation. Right? And I'm going to show this in a minute. Throughout Revelation, there are seven specific visions. Seven specific visions. The number is important. And I'll lay it out here in a little bit. Seven specific visions. Each of them starts with a picture of Christ being crucified, or the bulk of them do, which represents his first coming. Each of them ends with a statement on final judgment. Okay? And during each vision, each, vi each vision spans the entire church age from first to second coming. And then when you lay these seven circles on the top of each other, each with its own in, beginning in, beginning in, beginning in, beginning in, you will find that Revelation 20, which starts the last chat, the last section, Starts with the millennium, which cor corresponds to Christ's first coming. And it ends with judgment. Right. That's right. Christ's first coming and Satan being bound right at the beginning. So that's why Rick taught what he taught the other day, because if you lay these over the top of each other, 
you find that you have seven different viewpoints of the same time span. Okay? So this is what we call recapitulationism. Yes. I will. In a bit. And if you really want to lay it out, buy this. Okay? So, postmillennialism, a brief history. Because of the difficulties in defining this topic, the ideas vary from author to author depending on who you read. Some claim the view of Christendom throughout history, that, uh, I'm sorry, some claim that this has been the dominant view throughout Christendom, or, or the dominant view of Christendom throughout history. Others take a more cautious approach and maintain that it has been a continuing and significant position of many within the Reformed tradition. Um, despite whichever position you take, the Reformed tradition holds the most significant expression of postmillennial thought. So, postmillennial thought is basically equated to Reformed theology, okay, in either form. Most of the Puritans that you read were postmillennials, okay. Um, However, since the 20th century, there has been a substantial decline in the influence of postmillennialism, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Oh, well, I'll tell you right now. Uh, because of the pervasive global spiritual condition has markedly declined, which is contrary to historical postmillennialism. Postmillennialism says that the increase of the gospel being spread through the world will cause a, what's called a golden age. That the world will be saturated by the word of God and most, most societies will be structured around Christian thought. That's what postmillennial believes. And unfortunately, they've kind of taken a shot in the eye because instead of getting better, the earth is not getting <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I was not aware of that. But First World War was the key. I remember there was the, uh, in the late 1800s, there was a, a liberal theological movement in Germany. And uh, that's probably what the uh, uh, dispensationalists were fighting. Yes. There was a huge influx of liberal theology out of Germany during that, during that time. Huge. It might be. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Primary features of postmillennialism: the triumph of the gospel. In the period of history prior to the return of Christ, at the end of the age, the preaching of the gospel will triumph on the earth and bring about a conversion of nations. Lorraine Botner, how many of you have heard of Lorraine Botner? Okay, she's an author. Um, basically states this, I think this sums it up. Postmillennialism post is that view of the last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals. Uh, 
that the world is to eventually be Christianized and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace, commonly called the millennium. It's also called the golden age. Okay? Oh, which is my next point. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is basically an outline of how this will work. And that's what they refer to. Golden Age. With the triumphant spread of the gospel and the conversion of the nations, there will emerge a golden age just prior to the return of Christ. The gold, this golden age, or the millennium, will be a significant period of time during which the standards and precepts of the gospel will prevail on the earth. Though sin is not completely eradicated, this period will be marked by moral righteousness, universal peace, and unprecedented economic prosperity. It is basically a time when the kingdom of God is realized on the earth. Okay, I'm not going to get into all that. The conversion of the Jews, historic post-millennialists. Uh, taking the position that the Bible teaches that the great number of, of racial and national Jewish people will be converted through the preaching of the gospel. This conversion will be a distinctive feature of the golden age. Postmillennialism teaches that all are saved, Jews and Gentiles alike, by way of faith in Christ and through the incorporation into the one people of God, the church. It therefore rejects premillennialist distinctions between the church and national Israel. And then the dominion of Christ on the earth. In short, postmillennialists believe that Christ's reign at the Father's right hand must come to a concrete and visible expression on the earth at his return. Okay? That's postmillennialism. You can. You need a mic? I got it right here. I turned it on. I don't know if they... Postmillennialism uh, is the, what birthed what is known uh, today in so some of the circles that we had run in previously with um, Dominion theology, um, uh, the uh, Joel's Army. I don't know if you guys remember if you heard all those terms. Came out of Kansas City. They're still very prominent in a lot of the churches that were influenced by Toronto, Bethel, Kansas City. It's a dominionist theology that basically there's a last day's church on the earth that is a victorious church, which, of course, is true to a great degree, but it has a dominionist, and it's called sometimes in other ways, kingdom now. And so there's all kinds of terms that apply to this dominionist mentality that really is kind of a mishmash of premillennial dispensationalism and postmillennial dominionism. Right. So a lot of these churches don't really have a clear eschatology, which is why it's so confusing for some of you, because we have been influenced by all these things in our trek as a church, if you've been with us for a length of time, through our years. So what Dean is doing, like he said, is unteaching many, many years of us having 
um, aberrant thinking. Yeah. Now, what Rick talked on just now is something that I jumped over, and I did so because I didn't think I had time, but now that he's brought it up, <laughs> there, there are two, two aberrations that are typical with post-millennial thought. One is what Rick just talked about. It's called Reconstructionism. All right? It's that God's kingdom will take over the world, right? But there's also a thing called theonomy. And that is that the precepts of the Old Testament down to the letter will be that thing that governs society universally. That the Old Testament law, the law of God, will become the um, structure or the law of the land universally to the letter. To the letter. And that's an important thing. It's called theonomy. T-H-E-O-N-O-M-Y. Theonomy. Okay? In, in theonomy, yes. Yeah, but that's an aberration. That's what postmillennial easily drifts into. It's a Reconstructionist concept where God's law and God's ways, Sermon on the Mount, becomes the predominant concept of all so social structures around the world. That we all function according to biblical precepts. And that God is the primary function most people, most nations hold to a Christian worldview. That's Reconstructionist theology. Then it goes into even more, which is a deeper extension of that called theonomy where all of the law of God now becomes rigidly held to including sacrifice and rebellious kids get stoned yeah that's true okay so that's called theonomy so kids watch out because um, we're headed right for it I'm constantly thinking about how the law of God is so, so much better and that our Constitution doesn't work unless we recognize the supremacy of the law of God. Mm -hmm. And I'm, in my mind, I'm literally, I'm, I'm wanting to return, not, not to the Old Testament law of God, not the law of Moses, but I have it in my mind that if only everyone would do this, then everything would just be fine. Yeah. And so in a way, I'm kind of holding to this. I, this, this thought is in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so the way I spend my time, what I spend my time thinking about and grieving about is something that in a way is a, is a waste of time because this isn't going to happen. It's not. And, and so I'm spending all my time studying and instead, I really ought to be just spreading the gospel. <laughs> That's correct. Yes. That's a good point. So, you know, if nothing else comes out of this, then that's good. That's true. And so that's, that's really post-millennial thought taken to an extreme. Okay. All millennialism, where we are, 
Here we are. All of the above is not what we believe. But all of the above, as we've seen, affects what you consider. Okay? What is amillennialism? I have about 10 minutes to do this. It's not no millennium. That's why it's misnamed. Amillennialism means, actually, it does actually mean no millennium, which would give indication that those who hold to the position reject altogether the idea of a millennialism, a millennial, a millennium. However, the term amillennialism has been coined because the view rejects what's called Calliism of the other millennial views or a specific time period within redemptive history that is considered a golden age. It rejects that. Okay? Because this is a definite statement against post-millennial thought, which says that we're gearing up toward a golden age. Amillennialists don't hold to that. So they've coined the term amillennialism. Instead, uh, amillennialism regards the entire period between Christ's first and second coming as the millennium. And we do so based on certain scriptures like, and he must reign until all enemies are under his feet. Christ reigns. So we do not understand it to be a physical reign on the earth, but a spiritual reign as Stephen saw it when the heavens were opened and parted to him. And he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That is a position of authority, right hand. Do us do us word study on right hand. Jesus reigns from the Father's right hand right now, and did so at his and began that reign at his ascension. Okay. Some authors have offered a different moniker to avoid this misunderstanding. They call it realized millennialism or pro millennialism. I'm not going to use either one of those. A brief history. It has a long history of advocacy going back to the beginning of Christendom. And since the 4th or 5th century has been the predominant view of the church despite what you might think about premillennial dispensationalism. Premillennial dispensationalism is a very Western Christian idea. Uh, yeah, uh, is, has a long history of advocacy going back to the beginning of Christendom. And since the 4th or 5th century has been the predominant view of the church. Okay? Though already generally accepted at his time, Augustine, who established this view, uh, it was Augustine who established this view as the predominant one. By treating Revelation 20 as a symbolic description of the church's growth in the present age, he gave impetus to the amillennial contention that the millennium does not follow chronologically the early history of the New Testament church. Okay? It was Augustine who basically codified the idea. Though advocates of, the post-millennial, of post-millennialism are found among Reformed churches, 
And though the majority of evangelicals in North America are premillennialists, the prevailing view among Reformed and Christian churches remains that of amillennialism. Because of the influx of dispensationalism and its intensity and the way it's trained our kids and most of our pastors through the Bible colleges that are premillennial, it is the dominant thought in America. And we continue, we think often that because we think that way, so does the world. In this case, that's not true. Primary features of, of amillennialism is this. The millennium is now. You're in it. We are in the present reality of the millennial kingdom. It is regarded that Revelation 20 is a symbolic representation of the period of the present reign of Christ with his saints on the earth. During this time between the first and second comings of Christ, Satan has been bound in such a way that he is no longer able to deceive the nations. Listen to the podcast. It is not a period of 1,000 years, but represents as 10 times 10 times 10 the complete period within God's sovereign disposition of history during which he has granted to Christ the authority to receive the nations as his inheritance. Say it again. (laughs) It is not a period of 1,000 years, but represents... Uh, I'll just say this because the 10 times 10 times 10 is a prophetic statement of completeness, epic, or uh, uh, I'm sorry? Yeah. That's right. So there is a prophetic significance of this number, and it means to complete, the complete epic epoch. Okay? It represents a complete period within God's sovereign disposition of history during which he grant he has granted to Christ the authority to receive the nations as his inheritance it's a good statement amillennialism then rejects all forms of calism it is not a golden age during the reform uh, the uh, the um, church age It rejects the future establishment of the earthly kingdom of God. It does not hold that Christ's kingdom will eventually prevail upon the earth. It does not hold that the millennium is a time of universal peace. Pervasive biblical influence... Or the subject of the vast, uh, or the subjection of the vast majority of the nations to the lordship of Christ. It does not hold to that. Simply because Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world." That pretty well seals that deal, as far as I'm concerned. And it believes that the biblical descriptions of the interadvental period, or the period between the first and second coming, indicates that opposition to the gospel and to Christ will continue and even increase as history draws to a close. Okay? It understands the signs of the times. Uh, 
that it understands partic- uh, in particular the signs of opposition to the cause of Christ, tribulation, apostasy, and the spirit of Antichrist to be realities that exist throughout the church age. Throughout. That we're not looking for some one specific guy who's going to unleash this incredible antichrist concept on the earth that we've never seen before. Right now, just to give you a quick example, Chick-fil-A is being removed from um, airports all over the place because of their hate-mongering of the LGBT community. They're a Christian organization. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Okay? Uh, there will be a, uh, there will then never be a time in which the cause of Christ will so triumph on the earth that the suffering and the distress will no longer be experienced by the church and certainly not a thousand year period of that. It regards the signs of the time as characterizing the entire period during which Christ is gathering his church by his spirit and his word out of the adversarial kingdom. Okay? It focuses a great deal on the Christian hope. It inherently provides an insistence that the great future hope of the believer in the church is the return of Christ. Not a rapture, the return of Christ, which, according to Scripture, brings the current age to a close. Listen to this. Brings the current age to the close and consummates all things in Christ. There's nothing afterwards except for the eternal state, which I guess if you, that's something. <laughs> that's kind of the whole point, right? Although other millennial positions confess this hope, their hope is diminished by focus on different things, like a rapture and a reign of Christ. Uh, on the earth, a thousand years before you see the consummation of all things. Postmillennials deflects attention from the return of Christ and its expect- expectation of a premillennial or preliminary golden age ushered in by the pervasive influence of the uh, gospel global uh, of the gospel globally declared by the church. Okay, so in a nutshell, all millennialism does not believe in a non no millennium. It believes that we're in the millennium. It believes that all the signs of the times that premillennials point to as being indicators that Christ is about to return has always been that way. There has been always apostasy. There has always been the spirit of Antichrist. There has always been rebellion. There has always been wars and rumors of wars. There has always been earthquakes. There has always been national, uh, natural disasters. Okay? And when we get into Revelation and we get into this concept here, we begin to see how the bowls and the, sea and the trumpets actually overlay. How one trumpet says, this is a judgment that's coming on these things. And then the bull says, here's the judgment on the thing that the trumpet just said was going to happen. 
Okay, so when you overlay everything like this, you'll see how they, it's seven recapitulating concepts of the entire church age. I do have a, a, an outline of that. I have to stop. I do have an outline of that listed in these notes. I took it right out of this book. Okay, um, if, if you think it's interesting, just, just think about this. The number seven is used 55 times in the book of Revelation. And if you understand the prophetic significance of the number seven, you'll, you'll understand that it's the complete, the whole. Seven trumpets, the whole of God's warning. Seven bowls of wrath, the whole of God's wrath. Seven seals, the whole of God's redemptive plan. All right, so these are all important. I have that outline if you guys are interested in it. Um, come see me. I'll figure out a way to get it to you. Um, we'll jump into the book of Revelation now from an millennial perspective and read it accordingly. And then uh, we're done. Okay? Huh? And then he returns. And sin is dealt a death blow. There is no more waiting for him, Satan to be released another time. It outlines these seven recapitulations. It breaks out the seven visions, and it shows how at the beginning of each vision, there's a picture of Christ's first coming, not every one of them, but most of them. And then at the end, it shows the, the final judgment, or it refers to it scripturally. 